Yes. Uh, I've been reading the book uh, Subjective Evolution of Consciousness. Mm. And there's like a concept in there that I find hard to grasp. Shiva Shiva Maharaj is talking about the, that everything's an idea and that um, that stones have consciousness as well. But I find it hard to grasp like, like what that really means. That he's saying that when we when we see a stone, we communicate with it. At least that's what I understand from it. That we we assign meaning to it. That it's a stone. Uh -huh. But I, I can't really follow the reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The idea is that matter is not independent of consciousness. And matter, in a sense, takes on life by association with, with consciousness. We lend our life to material objects and then they take on a life of their own. So consciousness, in a sense, is infinitely more important than, than matter. I've often said that if matter mattered independently of consciousness, who would know about it? Do you follow? Who would care? Consciousness is, in this sense, much more important. Consciousness is the conceiver and matter is that which is conceived. So I believe in evolution of consciousness, Sridhar Marsh is speaking about that. And he's speaking about the idea, the very title, evolution of consciousness implies that there's some evolution going on, as evolutionists would like us to think, but that it's different than uh, the way they think about it, the way Darwin, for example, has, has thought about it. It's been said that Hindus were evolutionists long before Darwin. They have an idea of matter evolving over a long period of time in pursuit of the directives of consciousness when the soul wants to see eyes become manifest and objects of sight become manifest. Perhaps you've studied the Sankhya of Srimad Bhagavatam, Sankhya theory of Srimad Bhagavatam. That is the uh, aspect of the Sankhya philosophy, one of the Sadarshan, six darshans, or six famous philosophies of, uh, of, of ancient India, with which the Vedanta interfaced. Vedanta Sutra, the second adhyaya or second chapter of Vedanta Sutra is all um, an interface between Vedanta and Sankhya and the yoga philosophy and Vaisheshika's um, uh, uh, teaching and so forth, these, these six uh, other karma myomsa, what they say and what Vedanta says and what the Siddhanta is according to Vedanta as opposed to the other traditions. 
And so it's, as a side point, it's interesting to note that uh, these doctrines, while in and of themselves, are not in harmony with Vedanta. Nonetheless, many, much of them is incorporated into Vedanta. And with regard to Sankhya, the whole um, evolutionary theory, if you, if you will, this part of Vedanta. It's found in Bhagavatam, um, wherein there are a number of descriptions of how the material world, as we know it, with sights and sounds and eyes and ears, etc., senses, sense objects, and which make up the world, comes into being. This takes a long, long period of time. And the essence of it is that matter is uh, evolving, if you will, at, under the lead of consciousness. The jiva souls, all units of consciousness, are within the, uh, Vishnu. It's called the causal ocean that he rests in. And within uh, Vishnu, a desire comes. Uh, a think, a thought, a feeling, willing, and uh, the one becomes many. Vishnu becomes many in the form of the jivas, the stamp of of the. The maker is is on the maid, if you will, and um, little little gods are generated. It means the, the jivas, one becomes many, and this is called srishti. Srishti. It means the same thing in a sense as 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 samsara, srishti. But it's It's the play of God. It's it's a play. And and the, the, particularly the play or the Leela of Vishnu to interact with material nature in the form of the jivas. And of course the to win the game <laughs> The jivas, they come out of the, the confusion of material nature and meet, and meet their maker. But without the game, they couldn't meet their maker in the first place. So it's out of love, uh, out of joy, out of sport and compassion that the one becomes many. But that, that becomes problematic because of their smallness and size. The many become implicated under the influence of material nature in ways that are can be perceived as negative and uncomfortable, and, and so forth. Um, and into the world, Vishnu comes also in the form of some of the avatars. Scripture is made manifest. These are the rules of the game, and and, uh, and the avatars and uh, saintly persons and so forth help us in the game. And the very instruments that are manifest, interestingly enough, uh, in the form of the senses and the mind, 
for example, are, as much as often we speak of them negatively as the problem, they're actually useful in the jivas, um, finding a solution to the, to, the, to the game, the maze of life. Mind is, is, is a good example. Mind has a tendency, has a capacity to identify with a particular object. This is the problem, in a sense, is that through the mind we identify with various material objects, and these objects are not permanent. They're, as we say in English here today, and gone tomorrow. And so our experience is one of being unsettled, because we're identifying through the mind with material objects that don't, that don't endure, that are constantly undergoing a transformation. So we feel unsettled, like on a, constantly on a trip, never arriving. But if through practices enjoined in scripture and taught to us by saintly persons, we can learn to focus the mind on that which is eternal, the mind can identify with that also. If it's practiced, the mind as it can be trained. Uh, Bhagavad Gita says, Udared Atman Atmanam, Atmanam Avasadayat, Atmai Vatmano Bandur, Atmai Varipur Atmanam. Mind is the friend and enemy as well. It's as useful to us in conditioned life with regard to becoming unconditioned as it is detrimental to us. It's we lend it to material objects, and and, ser- and that tr- serves to train it in a particular way. It's moldable; hmm? it becomes disposed in a particular way towards the experiences in relation to sense objects that, that we expose it to, and so tendencies develop in us, which are very difficult. To, uproot, but this is why. And this course is happening over quite some time, and mind goes with us, body after body. So we were born with nature and tendencies, propensities, and so forth. But if mind, through spiritual practice, this is what we call sadhana, you see, it's practice. This, if, if the mind can focus on, on God... This is dhyan, this is uh, smaranam, meditation, japa, for example. You may find it difficult, but you should be, you should be encouraged to know that it's, this is the very nature of the mind as such, that you will, ha- you will necessarily be successful if you continue to try by fixing your mind on, on God, for, for example, Krishnanam, through japa, by really making an effort for some period of time every day, a concerted effort as the Gita says, wherever it wanders, draw it back, and so forth. It will create a. It creates a. It it, ser- it serves to uh, to train the mind in a particular way. It creates an impression through the mind upon our soul and a tendency to move in that direction. Ultimately, when sadhana bhakti is perfected, when we graduate from sadhana bhakti, what happens? 
we attain bhava bhakti. When, and what is the nature of bhava bhakti with regard to what I'm saying? Yeah, what is the second part? Ruchi bhischa chitamashrina. Ruchi bhischa The mind it becomes like if you take iron and put it in the fire, it becomes like fire. If I touch you with that, then you'll feel you got touched by fire, not iron, right? So this mind becomes like that. Hmm. This is bhava bhakti. It becomes completely molded. Sudha-sattva comes, ingress of Sudha-sattva takes over the mind. So mind can, Id- can identify with that and be, become like that. So it's, 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 we should be hopeful. It's possible. It may seem difficult, but, uh, but the nature of the mind is such that once you cross over the uh, the uh, threshold that starts to work for you instead of against you. It's working. Just the very nature of how it's working now tells us that because it's working in the way it is because of the way it's been exercised for for, for a long time. Exercise it another way, in this way, and of course that'll be very settling because the object. Uh, on which we are taught to focus the mind, God, in spiritual practice, is one that is uh, still and not moving, or moving, but in a in a in a comforting way. Just like love is is not static; it's dynamic and disconcerting, but we cannot give it up. Nonetheless, it's comforting and disconcerting at the same time. So, of course, now we're talking, speaking theology beyond uh, philosophy. Uh, philosophically speaking, we want to st- we want to move away from sense objects and focus on which are uh, ephemeral, and focus on that which is enduring and uh, which is still. So, this is this is God, Brahman the Absolute. But when we look deeply within Brahman, and how do we do that? By understanding the Shakti of Brahman, we can understand Brahman in the full sense of the term. Brahman comes to life by the influence of the Shakti. And his, in his, in Nietzsche's terms, his dancing. Of course, he didn't know about it, but, <laughs> but uh, he would have accepted him if he did. So he said, He's dancing. So that means God and love, and that is, means, that's a nice thing also because here we have the very object, uh, on which we should meditate that is still yet moving at the same time. So this is very user-friendly, if you will. Mind is used to, accustomed to, uh, contemplating things that are here today and gone to tomorrow are things that are moving. So it moves. And if we focus on Krishna, Krishna is moving. We can move from one leela to the next to the next. So anyway, at any rate, this will be comforting in in a general sense. It will bring us peace, and it will bring us more than that. Bliss and the movement, the, dyna- the dynamics, 
if you will, of love, which are, as I say, disconcerting and uh, and uh, comforting at the same time. So, Sambhog and Vipralamba, two banks of the river of love. You know the meaning? Union, Sambhog and Vipralamba, separation. So Vipralamba is disconcerting. Bhog, Sambhog is comforting. This, this is the play of divine love. So, at any rate, in the Srishti Lila, Vishnu is manifesting the world, a combination of matter and the jivas. That material nature that evolves under the influence of matter, the desires of the jivas, is evolving by the influence of consciousness, not independently of consciousness, according to modern science to Darwinian evolution, consciousness is a product of matter's evolution. At a certain point, matter becomes alive, and they call it living matter, consciousness. But uh, they see it as uh, not necessarily as a permanent, enduring, and uh, ontological reality that is... uh, uh, categorically different from matter. That's why if modern science is to embrace a spiritual tradition, they would first, uh, and seem to have done so, if at all, lean towards Buddhism, which says that matter is, or consciousness is, is non-enduring. It's a non-enduring experience. Matter is what is only... And um, and by arriving at that, they will say, one will arrive at the end of all suffering. Suffering, in their estimation, being the misidentification with a moment, if you will, in the um, ever-changing, uh, ever-transforming world of material nature moment of of humanity. Rather than identify with that, they would say, you are the tree, you are the ground, you are the sky. Uh, and we would say, you can become a stone. So we say that the, the goal of Buddhism is to become a stone. It's a crude way of putting it, of course, but in, in, in a sense, this is what they're saying, to become a stone, to become matter. We call it prakriti nirvana. This is different than Brahma Nirvana of Bhagavad Gita. And if you study Gita, Brahma Nirvana comes to Krishna, ultimately. I think in my commentary I've traced the use of the word Nirvana throughout the text and shown how it progressively comes to the conception of Krishna. This is not what the Buddhists are talking about. They don't admit the ontological reality of consciousness, Atma, or Paramatma, the Jeev, or God. So, they want to come to this uh, merging with matter, if you will. So sometimes in a simple way, we will say, oh, so that means to become a stone, to become as, as matter. So, consciousness is, is in the background of material nature, Consciousness is not independent. Consciousness is not independent. Excuse me. Matter. 
according to our theory, is not independent. Matter is not independent of consciousness. Matter is a is a, material nature is one of the, the the shaktis of God. So, because it's not independent of consciousness, we can say things like "Sarvam Kolo Vidam Brahma." Everything is Brahman. Everything is consciousness. I believe what Chidamarsh is speaking about directly there is the idea that while Darwinian evolution says consciousness evolves out of matter, we say that matter evolves out of consciousness. And therefore, for example, the stone is an idea. Do you follow me? Again, as I said, if there were matter independent of consciousness, who would know about it and who would care? Right? Without consciousness. So consciousness, the very idea of a stone, it, the stone is an idea, it's a concept. And we, we've put a name, a label on on something, we call it stone. So it's it's the origins of that are in consciousness, not the other way around. Not that consciousness comes from the stone, but stone comes from consciousness. I believe that's what he's talking about. Do you follow? Does that make it more clear? Yeah, it does. So everything's an idea. Hmm? Everything has its origins in consciousness. Consciousness is foundational to experience. There's no question of experience without consciousness. So to say that somehow that consciousness evolves out of out of out of matter and uh, is is a very in our estimation a very backward idea. We give some uh, credence to the idea of evolution. Things are evolving in in some some way, but we don't think that. Uh, Darwin's notion of it is is, is uh, very very perfect. His idea is very perfect, and very complete. <laughs> First, consciousness, then matter. Consciousness in the background of everything. Therefore, the the Hindu sages they would attribute a person to everything. This will appear to be a very simplistic. A way of looking at life, and uh, maybe a very human way, uh, anthropomorphic way of looking at at life, uh, and uh, backward. Hmm. Um, but uh, actually, they were it was it was very well uh, uh, thought out. They had a whole different way of looking at life. They looked at again at life with. Uh, uh, consciousness being primary and matter being secondary. Experiencer is primary, experienced is, 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 is secondary. And so they attributed personality to everything in nature. They attributed personality to, to the sun. And they taught us that we should worship the sun, for example. And... Um, and the reason was is is because our eyes with which we see those eyes are dependent upon the sun 
so similarly with all of our faculties of perceiving and knowing, they are dependent upon something within nature, within the macrocosmic scheme of things. And so as human beings, we should acknowledge that, that in order to see, I require the sun. So my eyes are not entirely mine to do with as I like. They're dependent upon a higher order of things, and I should acknowledge that. It's kind of a basic uh, gratitude, if you will. And by acknowledging the, uh, the fact that of our, of our dependence in pursuit of our, the furtherance of our ordinary material, sensual and mental life, by that simple acknowledgement we can, we can gradually move in the direction of a more progressive understanding of what we are, rather than to ignore that, to dismiss that, and to think erroneously that that my senses I can do with whatever I, I like. I mean, it's just not true. It's not. It's not accurate. I can't. I am dependent upon sun, for example, to see. So I should, if I can acknowledge that, I can grow, and I can actually, by acknowledging such dependence, I can I can uh, find real independence from the very thing that I erroneously think is giving me the freedom, my, my senses, for example, to do with as I like. They're actually the, the cruel masters under which I'm presently living, the oppression of mind and senses. So these are not very, really, uh, the primitive ideas that the uh, Rishis had. And their methods for coming out from underneath animality and moving towards spirituality, although un- not under- well understood by modern science, are, are, are nonetheless very um, well thought out on, on their part, how they received those aphorisms that make up the Upanishads through meditation and so forth. And what is the power in them? So we, should, we should try to apply that and find out ourselves. Does that help? Yes. Something else? Well, I'm thinking in the same way is that in the same way did they address mountains as persons? Just as in the same way a stone can be addressed as a person? Even today they, they address mountains as persons. Mount this, mount that. Yeah. <laughs> Could we see like, like mountains and stones like as as, as living entities? Yeah, but that are like captured by by the like to- totally overcast by material nature. Like, are they like souls and captured by by nature? By material yeah. Nature? Buddhists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. Stones. There is a difference between the jiva souls and, and material nature. There's a difference between material souls and, and, and jivas and material nature, yes. Yeah. Right. Is that like the... But they're very covered over, those jiva souls. Yeah, but 
soul or some material nature doesn't. Right, material nature doesn't have a soul. The soul of material nature is Vishnu. Doesn't like a stone have a soul that might, after a long time, go on to... A plant. Yeah, or a human body. It's possible. What's, uh, what's like, how do you understand them? Like a party on the trust of the Prakriti and the that the difference between matter and spirit. Well, it kind of sounds like you're saying that, that matter is, has the potential of becoming a Jiva soul. No. No. That the stone becomes, it's not that matter becomes a Jiva soul, but Jiva souls may take conditions, may, may live in conditions of life that are non-moving, and what we would call, uh, for all intents and purposes, inanimate. It's like you take a crystal, it, it grows hmm, very slowly. It's a stone. Hmm. But there's life in, 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 mineral, in mineral form. So are you, are you saying that all matter has, has um, a soul attached to it? Or? No, I don't think the piano has a soul in it. Uh-huh. So mm. is it like, um, but there's yeah. consciousness behind it, otherwise it wouldn't be as it is. So it's like things found in nature, like stones or crystals, but not man-made things that have souls. Right. Okay. And again, it's where else will the Buddhists be? They're practically the idea of extinguishing consciousness. It's not possible. Hmm. It's not possible to extinguish consciousness. But, but it, to the extent that we can, we can say that we've, we've ended suffering. Just as if you take some anesthetic, anesthesia, then you become free from suffering. So something like that. We are aspiring to become like that. We don't recommend it. Another question? Just no, no in this regard. Um, well, I was tending to think that um, actually there is only consciousness, but that consciousness according to our desires, material desires, that as you said, uh, becomes somehow Okay, you said covered by matter, but isn't that just a particular state of consciousness that actually there is only consciousness and under certain circumstances or according to our desires or according to... You cannot say that there is a Jeeva Shakti and there is a Maya Shakti. Both things are there. The background is consciousness for both. One is overtly conscious, Jiva. Matter is not, but it has its it has consciousness as its origin. So we don't want. Yes, matter is a is a condition of uh, of consciousness in in a sense. That's what you're saying. Hmm. In that sense, we can say everything is conscious, but matter exists. That shakti of the Lord has its existence. We don't say, as Shankar does, that matter doesn't really exist and try to 
with some word jugglery to to dismiss it as mitya. It does exist. Yes. So a self-realized soul still see matter as um, matter, like it's eternal, eternally matter. Well, yeah, but he but he sees all, all material nature and fully in relation to 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 God. So and that's since he doesn't he doesn't see in the same way or it doesn't have the same influence. He's looking at it from another angle of vision. Mm-hmm. It's not a problem. Therefore, Purna Sutta, Purna Vishvasukhayate, he sees. What is it? He sees the whole world as uh, joyful. Hmm. There's no problem. Yes. So is Maya Shakti also a devotee? Yeah. Sure, that is one of the. It's uh, one of the wives of uh, Vishnu who's sleeping. Material, the manifestation of material nature. He wakes her. He wakes her up, to an extent. It's one of the shaktis. There's a wife of, one of the wives of Vishnu. So she slumbers, and then he wakes her up, and material nature comes into play. And the material world manifests, it becomes unmanifest. It manifests, it becomes unmanifest. It's eternal. The material world is eternal. But it becomes manifest and unmanifest since time without beginning. And there's a certain type of soul. There are different types of souls. A certain type of soul that emanates from Mahavishnu for the purpose of Srishti, this Leela of creation. We come from that category. What we call the conditioned soul, Badajiv, comes from that group. And then in one sense, Vishnu manifests the world to, for the sake of those souls to catch them up. And particularly sadhakas. Give the sadhakas an opportunity to become, uh, to attain sadhya, perfection. Yes. When we talk about the material world, um, so if I understand, you can see it as a play of God, Lila. Um, so wondering how do how do we understand the concept of evil in it? Like in Christianity, it's a little bit of problems. How do Vaishnava and Gaudiya Vaishnava address this concept of evil? Yes, the uh, every every theology has to deal with exonerating God from evil, which is apparent that there is evil in the world, so how to exonerate God from it. However anyone does it, be it Christianity or Gaudiya Vaishnavism or Sri Vaishnavism, it won't satisfy everybody, the answer. Hmm? The answer won't satisfy everybody, I don't think. But um, the way in which the Gaudiya Vaishnavas answer this is... God is exonerated from evil because evil is a result of karma, and karma is anadi, without beginning. So there's no, it's, 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 uh, karma is, is, um, there are things that exist, like God, and we cannot ask the why of the, why of that, why God exists. How God is existing, 
how material nature is existing and interacting with God and so forth. We can discuss that. But where does God come from? This, this, we can ask that question. So, um, because karma by nature is, is anadi, beginningless, the jivas are under the rule of karma and they perpetuate their own, their own suffering. God is not responsible. God is continually reaching out to the jivas to free them from, from their angle, angle of vision. In a sense, the world is manifest for the sake of the jivas, to give them an opportunity to come out from underneath maya. And shastra is manifest for this purpose. But jivas don't always take advantage of it. Another way to explain it is there's, there's no one to blame. Who you blame? God is playing. There's only, there's only Brahman, and Brahman is playing. We're part and parcel of Krishna. We don't have, the whole idea of bringing forward the question, that is Maya. That's the problem. That we think we have some independence from God. But in reality, we don't have independence from God. So to, to think I have independence from God and that I can blame God, this is, this is the whole problem. You don't have independence. God exists along with his shaktis. He's interacting with his shaktis as he, see, as he pleases. Who, who's to blame? You understand? It's maybe a little hard to swallow if you're... <laughs> you have to make a little progress to... <laughs> But there's no one. To, there's no one to blame. Hmm? God is doing as He likes. Um, the way I've understood it is that evil comes from people trying to be independent from God. Right. That right. So they're to blame. Hmm? If we're to blame someone, but what is that? That's blaming. That's an, the whole idea of blaming is is that I that I sense myself to be independent. will of God. Right. As my will becomes one with the will of God, and I, which is what we call Krishna consciousness, then we don't see any problem. God is completely independent, so we are uh, dependent, but we are kind of, we have the stamp of God, so to speak, on us, so we are made in his image, as they say in Christianity. So, some sense of independence within our within the reality of our dependence is, is there. there different ways of talking about these things, and it depends to the level of our, our progress, how we will be able to relate to them. Therefore, with regard to origins, for example, even in, even in our material experience, there are different explanations. Sometimes when you're a child, you're taught the babies are dropped off by a stork in the chimney, and that's where they come from. Hmm. So, after a while, you learn there may be other explanations as well. So this, yeah, 
these are uh, complex topics, but it's good to keep an open mind in all of this. Mm. In spiritual life, be a, little, be a little flexible. What we think to be Krishna consciousness now, we will think very differently about it when we're Krishna conscious. Mm. It's interesting, but, it's, but still you have to grab onto the stage that you're on sometimes. Grab onto the stage that you're on and the understanding that you have, because that will give you support. But, and certain concepts which might be more progressive, they may be such that you cannot interface with them in such a way that it will call your progress. But you should respect them, nonetheless not go against them. In the name of your understanding, based on your level, otherwise that that becomes another cause of your going down. So, everyone is so many on different levels, and the philosophy will be talked about on different levels. So there is some scope sometimes for saying, "Don't go here on this level because that will not be good for you." But then, if we if we if the kanishtarikari goes against uh, higher principles that he doesn't understand that will not be good for him either maybe a place for remaining where you are this is the first instruction of Bhagavad Gita remain where you are do your duty hmm. what is the last instruction of the Bhagavad Gita abandon your duty it's just the opposite so, in the beginning, it says, yes, do your duty. And people say, this is Bhagavad Gita. Take care of my family. This is Bhagavad Gita. But that's not the conclusion of Bhagavad Gita. But you cannot always jump to the conclusion. Of course, we encourage people to jump to the conclusion <laughs> in the basic sense. To have to have faith in, in, in Sharanagati, the power of Sharanagati. This is the conclusion of the Gita. It's not the conclusion of Krishna consciousness. The conclusion of the Gita is the beginning of Krishna consciousness. The, for, the, real, the real beginning of Krishna consciousness. Formal beginning. Many things are spoken of in the Gita, of course. Different, different levels of um, eligibility and what... Uh, those who ha- are on that level are entitled to. But all of this in Bhagavad Gita is talking directly or indirectly about its, its, its ultimate ideal, its goal. And that goal, that conclusion of Bhagavad Gita is, the be- is the really the beginning of Krishna consciousness. Don't think Sarvadharman, Pratyaja, Mami, Kamsharanambraj is the end of Krishna consciousness. It's the beginning. It's the beginning and the end. But by that I mean that Sharnagati, surrender, is the, is the ground, the stage on which the uh, drama of bhakti is performed. So it's in place in the leela of Krishna. And it should be in place in the heart of the sadhaka also. But in the Leela, it's intensified that much more. But this is the ground, the stage on which the drama of, of Krishna Bhakti is performed, Sharanagati, surrender. 
Krishna says in the Gita, Manmana Bhava Madhvakto Madhyaji Manamaskuru. Mamaya Vaishasi Satyam Te Pratijani Priyosime. He tells Arjuna. This is uh, echoing in the 18th chapter what he said in the 9th chapter. You know the verse, right? Manmana Bhava Madhvakto. Become my devotee. But after that, he says, Sarvadharman Pratyajama Mekam Shadaman Braja. So he's telling how to become a devotee there by erecting the stage of Sharanagati. You have to put the stage up if you want the, the, the drama to be performed. So in your heart, you have to erect the stage of Sharanagati. And then you can say, coming soon, the, the, the movie of Krishna Leela, coming soon to a heart near you. <laughs> so this is... <laughs> We have to think about that, Sharanagati, Sharanagati, Shraddha, Sharanagati, and Shraddha, when Shraddha reaches the stage of Ruchi, develops up to Ruchi, and Sharanagati, that stage is really in place. Before that, we're building the stage, putting it together. When when Shraddha comes to... Shraddha, Shraddha is a divine thing. You have to understand Shraddha means faith. Divine thing. There's a, in the language of Shri Ramarsh, there's a land of faith. Don't doubt it. There's a land of doubt. And no doubt, we're living in it. I doubt, Descartes said, therefore I am. Hmm? Right? So, this intelligence function of doubting and uh, measuring and so forth. It's the upper rim of, of, of the material experience. Hmm? But above that, it categorically different from that, of course, is, is consciousness, the self. So we live in a world of doubt, and we proceed with caution. Just like if you go to a foreign country, and then uh, someone offers you something to eat, you think, what's, what's in it? And you want to read the label and wonder... And so, but if you come home, then uh, in your own host house, uh, mother cooks, puts on the table, and then you feed. She says, "Eat," and you eat. Of course, it might be different because our situation may have changed. <laughs> but uh, I'm speaking in general terms. So, mother will say, "Eat." Even she gives an order, "Eat." You don't think about it because there's love behind that. There's compassion behind that. The scripture works like this also. It gives edicts, eat, do this, don't do that, stop. And if we feel through spiritual progress the background behind those edicts, those orders of love and compassion, then we just accept them without having to know the reasons why. And, and, and our intellect can, can, can be put to rest. Soul can, can come out entirely and live in the homeland of the heart, then there's free movement. We're not proceeding with doubt, with caution. An intellectually ruled life is prim and proper, but uh, it's, it's not very necessarily happy. It's stuffy. So to, to proceed without caution, that's Brindavan, Leela. No, no caution there. Gyan Shunya Bhakti unencumbered by having to know 
the burden of having to know why. We have to know why. Yeah. <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem to an extent, of course. So, don't, don't insist that your soul be the slave of your intelligence to a point. It's like I address you with uh, in a logical arrangement of words and so forth because we speak at least the common language of reason. But Mahaprabhu's teaching seeks to tell us that, that humans have the potential to be different from other species of life, not merely because they can reason, but because they can love. So we should speak the language of love. This is the language of the soul. This is the language by which the Leela is moving. It's free and it's unencumbered by, by intelligence. And the, I speak to you and you listen and hold between your ears and if it makes sense, then you let it go into your heart, very much protecting your heart. But what we don't know, of course, is when a real sadhu speaks, he speaks from his own heart, not from his head only. And so even though we're making, regarding that nothing will go inside except what we, what we acknowledge and, and fits for our intellect, other things are going inside. Well-wishing is going inside anyway. <laughs> and then you, then you start to think about things differently. You start to reason about things differently. That is called sukriti. That sukriti causes us, predisposes us towards the psychology, psychologically towards the philosophy of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Hmm. And we think that makes sense, yes. Why other people don't, it doesn't make sense to. Purely from a logical point of view, it, it doesn't have to make sense. Neither will it necessarily make sense because it's beyond logic. The whole experience is, is far beyond the limits of, of, uh, of logic and its capacity to explain and do justice to. So the insistence that it must, this is, this is a, this will, if we are too much insistent on that, that will damage our, our capacity to progress and to go there. So we should be careful. We can go there by, by faith. That's how we can go there. Faith is not an unreasonable thing. Faith is the removal of doubt. So faith, shraddha, where do we get that? Who has faith, gives faith. There's a land of faith. So who's gone there, hmm? then he carries that faith and it is contagious. If, if you can meet someone who's gone there, that would be very helpful to you. More so than reading the travel brochure. Right? If I give you the travel brochure, you can find out about India. But if you meet someone that's gone there, they can tell you so many stories that won't you won't find in the travel brochure. You'll feel yourself getting dysentery practically, just listening to him talk about it. It'd be very compelling. So, to meet a person of faith, then faith will come in us. And when faith develops, faith means, according to our faith, then we, we, we move. So, this faith causes us to move in the direction of Sharanagati because that plane from which faith has come is full of Sharanagatas. Everyone is fully surrendered there. Hmm? Fully surrendered their will to the will of God, the will of Krishna. The Leela is the very playing out of Krishna's will in conjunction with willing 
agents. Krishna is expressing himself, that is Leela, and doing so with those who are willing. And it is as if it is their own life, but it is his life at the same time, only. It is, no, it is a wonderful thing. It is not an independent life. It is his life. But we will feel as if it is, as if it is our own, and after all, we are of the nature of him. Do you understand? So Shraddha. Shraddha comes to us, touches us. We can tread the path of bhakti. And there are progressive stages. They are described in different ways, but one of the ways in which we can describe them as progressive development, really, of, of Shraddha. If I have Shraddha, then what will be the progressive development of that beginning faith that touches me? Oh, I want to associate with other people who have this. I want to keep that company. So I've really identified with that. It's moving me. I want to keep the company of others who feel like this. Hmm. In the context of that company, one of my person I find really moves my shraddha. Hmm? Amongst so many sadhus, devotees, one really moves my, my shraddha. From shraddha to sadhu sangha, in the context of sadhu sangha, we find that one person, that means we find a guru, that means bhajana kriya. Then we learn from him how to increase my shraddha through spiritual practices. And, and increasing the shraddha means removing doubt, so anartha nivritti. You see, this is all increasing of the shraddha. Then the shraddha becomes what? Firm. When does the shraddha become firm? As much as we are willing to bend. As much as we, can, we become flexible, we become fixed. Bend over. Like humble, like a blade of grass. Be flexible. Then you become fixed. Wonderful idea. The shatter becomes fixed and it then then it develops into into ruchi. It means that you actually Tasting from that side, the other side, from the world of Shraddha, the land of faith. The connection, connection is coming there, faint connection. Oh, then you're carried by that. Reason now subsides. Reason becomes subordinate to taste. So you get funny reasoning out of these people. That's called Gaudiya Vaishnavism. <laughs> It's different reasoning. They read the scripture in a, according to taste in a different way. One will say, oh, it means like this. This verse means like this. They read something in the Upanishads. They say, that is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. You say, what? What are you talking about? Look at the context of this. This doesn't mean Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. They're feeling that. Finding so many hidden things there. And someone may say, that's not what the scripture is saying. That, I, that's your interpretation. But that interpretation is so valuable. What is it based on? That person is interpreting like that. But that person has taste for Krishna consciousness, for spiritual life. And that's desirable. That's the goal, isn't it, of the scripture? So at this stage, at any rate, this ruchi, 
at Ruchi, this sharanagati, this surrendering, hmm, is complete in faith, is aprakrita, alokic. It's it's uh, it's transcendental. It's 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 not ordinary. It's not just common, general, generic faith. Faith in God, faith in Krishna. Now it's becoming uh, developing in a in a refined way, in a particular way. Hmm? And one then one's will become attached, ashakti, on that side, and then bhava bhakti. So he will go in a particular way with a particular way of looking at the Leela, from a particular angle of vision. Fondness for that, and liking of those particular Leelas that are in support of that, and so forth. This way he develops to Prema. So, it is all Sharnagati, it is all surrendering, it is all Shraddha and Sharnagati, and the intensification of that. So this Sarvadharman Pradaja, that's the beginning of Krishna consciousness. It's also the end. It's the fluke call of Krishna. But it must be in place in the life of the sadhaka in order to make progress. You have to do this sincerely with your heart. So, anything else? How far is suffering a necessity for progress, or is it, may it also be an obstacle? How far... Sometimes it seems that we create our own suffering and also may think that it's unnecessary. Uh, maybe sometimes we make that path more difficult than it has to be necessary. Maybe. Some degree of suffering is unavoidable. There's no doubt about that. We may create more than we than 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 necessary. And uh, and suffering is that we experience is, is, is necessary for our proge- progress in general. I think good to look at it like that. It doesn't mean that we try to like, make a, create artificial circumstances, make it more... To a point, it's useful to create circumstances that will be favorable for your practice. It's not uh, a good idea to just say, well, nothing can be done. Hmm. And, uh, and you're, you're, there has to be... You have to... Um, sadhaka is a very, very practical person. A sadhaka is idealistic in a sense, and optimistic, but very pragmatic at the same time. Hmm. Madhyama means also means a very prag, pragmatic person. So, within reason, some effort should be spent to create a situation that's conducive to your practice. If 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 you don't have a certain level of material comfort, then you will suffer to the point where you cannot practice. Therefore, make an arrangement. For a, to, to come to a level of material comfort that frees you from constantly feeling the pain, the pain of being un, materially bereft and uncomfortable hmm, to the point that you cannot practice. So a sadhaka has to be very pragmatic and find that 
that blend. You can't spend forever just getting ready to practice. I need this, and I'll need that, and so. But some some effort must be spent on that. What we find even the Goswamis, they selected beautiful areas, for example, to do their bhajan. I mean, if you go to Vrindavan today, their places are in the middle of the town and so forth, because the town built up around that. But originally, they selected very beautiful places, and places in conjunction with Krishna Leela, but also in terms of being um, quiet, peaceful. All these things are mentioned in the, in, in, in the scriptures. In Vedanta Sutra, it's, it's spoken of. You have to make some arrangement to do your sadhana. You have to have a seat. It shouldn't be too high, Gita says. It shouldn't be too low. Too high, you might fall off. Too, too low, some snake might come and get you. So the health, some practical considerations are there. And if you really know what you want to do and accomplish and you're sincere about that, then the, and that will, will guide you. You won't be uh, over-endeavor beyond what's realistic or necessary. And, and you won't, um, in the name of... Um, not wanting to uh, be a surrendered soul. You, you, you won't do uh, anything about um, suffering that's troubling that, that you that you could easily do something about. So be practical. This is the middle path. <laughs> okay. Anything else? On the whole, the place is are other religions also transcendental, like Vrindavan? Are other religions transcendental? You know, the whole places of other religions, like Mecca. Yeah, like Mecca and places like that. Are they transcendental? Are other holy places transcendental? Yes. I think that um, the sacredness of any of any place. Depends on the on the religious conception behind it. Many places may have sacredness to a point, but even in India, for example, even within our own tradition, we distinguish between a tirtha and a dham. A tirtha is a sacred place. A dham, which is the Lord's abode, where He descends, that's that's different. That's more sacred. So there may be varying degrees of sacredness that are attached to sacred places, and and if we look at the uh, the doctrine and the ideal, let's say the ideal of the uh, tradition attached to a particular place, we'll be able to determine from our point of view the degree of its sacredness. I'm not an expert on other religions. It's difficult enough to be an expert on on one, on the one that you follow. But we, we it's a good question. We live in a pluralistic world, and we inter religiously plural world. We interface with other religious traditions and so forth. And there's always a sense of today's world wanting to acknowledge the spiritual validity in other traditions rather than to fight with them. In the name of saying that mine is better and so forth. So I think in a general way that we should have that that posture and and feel that way towards people who actually uh, ex express um, 
whose character is, uh, is, is godly, saintly, still, nonetheless, if we're Gaudi Vaishnavas, we'll think ours is, is best. Why would we be involved if it's, if it's not? So you have to be, you know, really, spiritual life is really about bias. It's not about being neutral. <laughs> it's about being biased. So the more biased you become, in, in, a, in a, as long as there's a proper philosophical and theological foundation for your bias, then it has value. Hanuman's bias towards Ram. That's good. There's a story how Dwarka, in Dwarka, Krishna sent Garuda to bring Hanuman. Krishna said, go and tell Hanuman, I'm here in Dwarka, I'd like to see him. Garuda is the, is the bird carrier of Vishnu and Krishna in Dwarka. Sudama, Gopa, Sridam, excuse me, Gopa, in the Brajlila becomes Garuda in the Dwarkalila and carries Krishna. Just like in the Brajlila, Krishna will carry him after he defeats Krishna in wrestling. So this this Parshat of Krishna in Brajlila follows him to the Dwarkalila as Garuda. Anyway, he sent him, go tell Ram Hanuman to come. Tell Hanuman, I, I'm here, I want to see him. So Garuda went and told Hanuman, Krishna is in Dwarka, he would like to see you. What did Hanuman say? He said, yes, tell him I'll be there in a couple minutes. I'll, I'll come. He was shocked. Krishna is calling you. This is how you react? He went, flew back to Dwarka and told Krishna his reaction. And Krishna said, oh, well, go back and tell him that Ram wants him. Ram is in Dwarka. So he went back and told him, Ram is in Dwarka. He's calling you. And, uh, and Hanuman said, All right. Uh, I'll be there. And then he disappeared and Gerda was bewildered and, and flew back to Dwarka. But when he flew back to Dwarka, Ram was coming the other way. Hanuman was coming the other way, chanting, Ram! The idea is that as soon as he heard that Ram wanted him, he leaped there and went faster than Garuda could have carried him. So much so that when Garuda was coming back, Ram was or had already gone there and was coming back the other way. So this is an example of the spiritual bias. But the whole of Vaikuntha is made up of this kind of spiritual bias. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. In, in Vaikuntha, they have a bias. They don't think Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam. Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. They think that Narayan is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. As much as we preach this and we are so strong on this point, in Vaikuntha they don't think like that. So it's okay. It may be okay to think like that. Krishna Skaviraj Goswami, in the second chapter of Chaitanya Charitamrita, he gives a long argument. He makes two points there that he says are very controversial. He says, one, Krishna is the, is the source of Narayan. Two, 
Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is Krishna himself. Gives a long argument for this. And afterwards he says, but if some people want to think of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu as Mahabishnu, as an avatar of Mahabishnu, it's not wrong. That's another angle of vision. It's, it's not, he says, it may be, it's not very flattering, but it's not untrue either. There's a way of looking at it like, it's not very flattering to call him as merely a incarnation of Vishnu, but it is an angle of vision that is some have, and it's, it's spiritual. So this bias is, 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 is desirable. We have our particular bias, and we, we see accordingly. So just to remain neutral and appreciating everyone, it only, only goes so far. And also we think, we think love, well, love means we have to love everyone. And, but we find in so many devotees of Krishna, they say very strong things sometimes. So that if, if you understand love psychology, then you can appreciate it. What is really love? If you love someone and then that person, another person doesn't like you, then you don't like that person either. <laughs> I won't talk to him. He thinks like that about you? I won't even talk. I don't like him. So sometimes devotees, real devotees, they talk like this. We find that sometimes in the scripture. That's a good thing, actually. Although we live in a pluralistic world, we have to be broad-minded and everything, still. And we take Thakur Bhakti Vinod, he said some very nice things about non-sectarianism, sectarianism being the enemy of progress. And if you ever read his speech on the Bhagavad, it's very, very broad-minded. We'll be inspired by that. But he's also written in other places, anyone who doesn't have any regard for Radha, I don't want to see his face. <laughs> so, that's another thing. Yes? Like now you're mentioning that you have to be broad-minded. It's a good thing. I mean, uh, devotees, uh, we were talking yesterday, the metaphor that Bhakti Yoga is like walk, walking on a racist edge. To be very careful. So, it seems like it's a contradictory there. To be broad-minded and at the same time be... In one sense, when I say broad-minded, I mean you have to be broad-minded about Gaudiya Vaishnavism, Krishna consciousness, that, and, and enter it with an idea that you're only understanding it a little bit incrementally. Hmm. Don't think you've understood it all. Be a little open-minded, be a little flexible. Hmm. It's bigger than you realize. There's more to learn and understand. So be a little flexible. Otherwise, in a general sense, Yes, to be open-minded in our, and generous, I should say, in our view of others is good. I don't see how being generous in our view of others and is necessarily an impediment to um, treading the path of Gaudi Vaishnavism. Razor's edge, yes, that sometimes is used, that, that analogy, but 
Krishna consciousness is also very user-friendly. It's not so difficult. It's, it's kind of difficult to make make a mistake, serious mistake. So it's not good to become neurotic about being on the razor's edge and then he, that neurosis also has, expresses itself in relation to the world and people that makes you look rather odd in their eyes and um, and uh, and uh, makes you act uh, artificially in a sense as if you're um, different you are different just like an orphan and a uh, and, and a boy who's got a good home but living on the street look both like orphans but the one who has the son of the king is living like an orphan but he can go home at any time hmm. that's different that's our difference if a Vaishnav someone of spiritual consequence cares about us thinks about us then we're different than other people who don't have that in their life. But that's the difference. There may not be much difference otherwise. <laughs> so, therefore, we hold on to the, to the feet of such persons tightly. And they're very generous. Yes, the path is very exacting. But in the beginning, we'll talk about it in a general way. Gradually, gradually, it will become more focused. And, and, and you'll be capable of treading it. Anything else? It's, we've talked quite some time now. What time is it? So, we'll stop there, okay? Jai. Sri Sri Guru Gauranga Ki Jai. Esi Bhakti Vedanta Swami Prabhupada Ki Jai. Bhakti Rapsak Siddhadev Goswami Maharaj Ki Jai. Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasri Thakur Prabhupada Ki Jai. Sri Bhakti Vinod Puribhara Ki Jai. Gaur Bhakta Rinda Ki Jai. Gaur Premanandi. Haribo.